Well, this morning we pick back up with the book of Hebrews. And where we we find ourselves is, is we've come to a shift in this letter. So we've been in chapter 1, and and, and the author now moves from proclamation in chapter 1 to application here in this uh, first part, these first few verses of chapter 2. And with this shift, we come to the first of six warnings. Six warnings that the writer of Hebrews uses to, to punctuate this sermonic letter. And you heard me right, six warnings in store for us. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe not so much. But, but, you know, why is that? When we come to things like warnings, why is it uh, that it just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, a whole lot of good? Well, you know, it, it's, it's because we often think of warnings only as something negative and burdensome rather than as something positive and helpful. And so as we get into this passage and even look ahead to to warnings uh, coming up in Hebrews, I want to encourage you to think of each warning as an invitation. Okay, an invitation. In today's passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, today's passage is an invitation to pay careful attention to pay careful attention to the message about Jesus, the gospel of God's grace for you and for me. And what we're going to see in this invitation is that we are being invited to become furiously obsessed with Jesus. That's the invitation here. Well, let's pray and then we'll hear God's word. Well, Lord God, we we come to you this morning and ask that that you would awaken our hearts to your word. We ask that you would direct our attention away from those things that so easily distract us and, and cause us to drift and focus our attention on the beauty and power and majesty of Jesus that we might become more and more obsessed with him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And so now hear the word of God uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And this is God's Word. Okay, that's a a mouthful, for sure. Uh, Maybe sounds a bit confusing. But really, as we take a look at it, we'll see that it's not all that complicated. And so just, just hang with me. And the writer begins by saying this, that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard 
so that we do not drift away. Well, what have we heard? Why might we drift? And what are we to do? So those are the three questions we're going to consider this morning. What have we heard? Why might we drift? And what are we to do? And so first, well, what have we heard? Well, we've heard the good news of Jesus. The good news of His perfect obedience and sacrificial death on our behalf as our substitute. That we might be forgiven of sin and accepted by God. That we might be brought in to relationship with Him because of His great love for us. In other words, we've heard about the beauty and power of Christ's atoning work. So chapter 1, the previous chapter, it begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now... But now, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son, who has made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The main message of Hebrews is that Jesus has made complete purification for sins. And He has sat down at God's right hand because His work is finished and perfect, and thus effective to forgive sin. Now why is that so important? Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because sin eternally separates us from God. Sin leaves us destined for eternal misery. It separates us from from a relationship of eternal joy and happiness, a relationship that we were created for. And so Jesus offered himself as the full and final solution for our deadly sin problem so that we could be brought in and enjoy relationship with him, both now and forever. We simply receive this gift through faith, by trusting in Jesus as our substitute. And such a great salvation, such a great salvation is for us to continually receive and rest in. Not just to begin with, but something for us to continually receive throughout our lives as we continually learn to trust Him more, as we continually learn to increasingly live out the reality of this grace in relationship with God and with one another. And as we see here in chapter 2, this is the message first declared by Jesus during his earthly ministry and then given to us by those who heard him, that is, uh, his, his disciples, the apostles, And also confirmed by God through the demonstration of power and authority in the life of His Son. Ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus. And so friends, this is the message that the whole New Testament is about. And we're talking about the gospel. The gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus. And in contrast to the law, which was delivered by angels as Stephen declared 
In Acts 7, in contrast to the law, as we see here, the gospel is such a great salvation. It is a superior gift in that it fully covers all our sin, all our sinful flaws, that we might be acceptable to God and know His love for us. So I I know someone whose friends adopted a child uh, from another country. Uh, And and when they went to the orphanage, uh, they found this little girl wrapped in a red blanket. And in that culture, red is a sign of favor and love. And so that red cloth signified that although this little girl had been abandoned, that she was actually chosen and loved. And it also did something else. For when these new parents leaned over into the crib and and pulled back that red covering from her face, it revealed a facial feature, one that would be unacceptable in that culture. And the red cloth covered that flaw, one that would have meant rejection. And friends, for us, because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, we have a much more compassionate covering. A covering that surrounds us fully and completely in love. One that covers all of our sinful flaws. We're covered, we're wrapped, we're washed by the blood of Jesus that we might be acceptable to God and know his love for us. Therefore, therefore, in light of such a great salvation, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must pay much closer attention so that we do not drift away. That leads to our next question. So second, why might we drift Why might we drift? What are some of the things that cause us to drift away from the gospel? And it's important to note that drifting is not the same thing as rebelling. Okay? And also that drifting happens when you aren't paying attention. When we aren't paying careful attention to the gospel, then we easily begin to drift away from Jesus. And the problem is that we all have a tendency to drift. All of us. Every single one of us. Now, it's not something that we like to admit. In fact, uh, many try to suppress this tendency, uh, living in denial of it. But there's always a part of us that so often is drawn to other things, things other than Jesus. And left to themselves, our hearts tend to drift away from God. It can happen so easily, and it can be so imperceptible. You know, many many things that can cause us to drift away. Uh, Sometimes it's suffering or or opposition, and we're just ready to give up. Other times it's, it's the busyness of our lives, filled so full with so many distractions, distracting us from what matters most. It can be ease and prosperity. 
uh, luring us into to laziness or complacency. And often, it's our own sin. Our own sin that we're holding on to and maybe even blind to. You know, many things, even the smallest of things, can cause us to drift away. You know, so, so, so think about it. Think about your car. Think about when, you, when you're driving in your car and the, and the distractions that you come upon. You know, maybe it, it's a billboard that grabs your attention and, and you inadvertently drift into the other lane. Two-lane highway. Maybe you're out on Route 5. 45 mile an hour, 55 mile an hour zone. You drift into oncoming traffic. Our tendency to drift can have disastrous consequences. And so the writer of Hebrews calls us to pay careful attention so that we do not drift away from Jesus. And ultimately, we drift, we drift when we neglect such a great salvation. When we neglect it. And so what are we to do? Well, that leads to our final question. Lastly, what are we to do? Well, again, the writer of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay much closer attention. Think about that phrase for a moment. Actually, in Greek, it's only two words. Pay much closer attention. And, and what stunned me this past week as I was studying this passage is that this phrase here, it's actually much stronger than I would have ever realized. And so the word translated pay attention literally means to be obsessed. And the word translated much, much closer then adds an intensity to it. And when they are combined, when they are put together, it means to become furiously obsessed. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that we must become furiously obsessed with the gospel. Furiously obsessed with Jesus. In other words, you don't, you don't just get the gospel when you first become a Christian and then move on. No, you, you've actually begun a journey. A journey of becoming all that God is, has called you to be. All that God is making you to be. And to do that, you've got to go deeper in the gospel and become more and more obsessed with Jesus. You've got to become furiously obsessed with this original message. It's not just an old message that we move on from. It is one so deep and so rich that there is so much still for us to discover. And that's how we grow in grace. And if you don't do this, then you'll drift because you'll be neglecting such a great salvation. And so you've got to take the gospel and obsess on it. You've got to work it deep down into your life. You, you've, you've got to work it into your life over and over and over in relationship with God, in relationship with others. Working the gospel deeper and deeper. Becoming furiously obsessed with it. Not furiously obsessed with the concept of grace. 
but furiously obsessed with living in, living out the reality of this grace. It's the difference between being intellectually gospel-centered and relationally gospel-centered. The difference between merely understanding the, the concept of the gospel up here and being deeply gripped by the power of it here. It's becoming furiously obsessed with the person of the gospel more than the concept of it. Or as Ken Sandy puts it, it's the difference between being relational and just being informational. In other words, do you primarily get the gospel in your head? Is it primarily up there? Or has it gone deeply? Has it penetrated into your life and transformed the way that you relate to God and others? Okay, so, so why is this such a struggle for so many of us? Why do so many people struggle to go deeper? Well, it's because either you're not aware of your need to go deeper, or you're committed to avoiding your need. Either you, you didn't know that there's more, that you remain in need, or you've had enough of being needy. You despise it. And you want instead to, to appear strong and competent, even though that's just a farce. You see, often it's our unbelieving hearts that keep us at arm's length from the gospel, from deep daily fellowship relating to Jesus. Unbelieving hearts. Because you, if you think about it, if we're honest with ourselves deep down, we so often believe that Jesus probably gets frustrated with us. Probably gets frustrated. I mean, we've got to keep coming back to him again and again for fresh forgiveness. Maybe about the same things over and over in our distress, our emptiness. And if you take that a step further, and if we're honest with ourselves, then deep down... What we believe in those moments is we believe that Jesus has grown tired of our weakness and need and thus grown tired of us. And so we often try to cover our own sinful flaws, posturing ourselves, working hard to, to perform, to, uh, to live up to some standard, avoiding we try to cover up our own sinful flaws rather than fleeing to Jesus. Rather than going to Him and resting in His grace. Fellow PCA pastor Dane Ortland says it so well. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to Him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, and all of our distress and need and emptiness, that's the whole point. It's what He came to heal. Jesus plunged down into the horror of death and came out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to His people. However, our unbelieving hearts tread cautiously here. 
Is it not presumptuous audacity to to draw on the mercy and grace of Jesus in such an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be be measured and, and reasonable about it? Careful not to pull too much on him. Well, would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way? You see, Jesus' deepest desire is that we would continually come to him. That is why he gave himself for us, that we would come in our weakness and need and that we would receive afresh his mercy. His mercies are new every morning. They are new every moment, and so come. He desires that we would continually breathe deeply of his life-giving grace, that we'd become furiously obsessed with him, just as he is with us. So I remember about 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a, a large national pastor's conference, so that means there are a lot of pastors there. There are a lot of uh, big, big names on the, the speaking lineup. I was excited about some of those, and I remember one evening at a worship service when Tim Keller was down to preach. And so I looked at the order of worship, and, and I noticed that earlier in the service that there'd be, there'd be a younger pastor giving a testimony. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm glad that's not me. I mean, who wants to precede Tim Keller? Ain't nobody going to remember that testimony. Well, I'd, I'd say the pastor was, was, he was probably about 40 years old, and, and when he began telling his story, I thought to myself, ain't nobody going to forget this testimony. I mean, it sounded like the most arrogant, self-promoting thing that I could have ever heard. I'm like, this is a testimony? It's just about how great this guy is. He began by talking about how successful he'd been as a church planter, And then how successful he'd been making this transition from planter to pastor. How much his church was growing by leaps and bounds. I remember he he said specifically, he said, you know, I've really got a good grasp of the gospel. And and I I, I can preach with such power and clarity. And the people come to hear God's word. And then I I can meet with people in intimate settings. And I, I can counsel the gospel. With, with, with real wisdom and insight and, and practical application. And I've been seeing people change. I've seen them change. And then his story took a turn. And that's what I'll never forget. He said, yes, I could preach the gospel. And yes, I could counsel the gospel. But I soon learned that I didn't relate through the gospel. I proclaimed grace, but I didn't live it out with others. And I discovered that personally, I was missing Jesus. That day in and day out, I was trying to care for for God's flock. I was preaching from His pulpit, and I was missing Jesus. I wasn't healthy as a leader, Albeit unintentionally, I I was hurting others. I was wounding the body of Christ. And yet I was blind to my blindness. I couldn't see it. And honestly, I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to see it. 
But then one one day my eyes were finally opened. They were opened when it almost cost me my marriage. I began to see a counselor and slowly began to learn the gospel in my own heart. Slowly I began to learn to live out the very, the, uh, th- this gospel, the very gospel that I had been proclaiming for so long. I finally began to really see Jesus with the eyes of my own heart. As for my testimony, I once was blind, but now I see. And I'm learning to live in God's amazing grace. A beautiful picture of Christ's strength, his ongoing provision of mercy and grace to his beloved children in our weakness. In fact, the psalmist says that he rescued you because he delights in you. And he's made a way for you to know that delight. And so that day, that pastor was calling us, calling us as other pastors, to pay careful attention to the gospel, to not miss Jesus, but to continually go deep with him, to depend on him each and every day. I saw someone that day who had become furiously obsessed with Jesus. And he was inviting us to share in that very same obsession. And friends, that's the invitation here in Hebrews 2. And so brothers and sisters, obsess on Christ's love for you. See the living word poured out through his written word. Call out to him and obsess for what he did for you on the cross. And pay close attention to his continual provision for your continual need. And cling, cling to his abundant mercy and grace each and every day. Fix the eyes of your heart on Jesus. And become furiously obsessed with him. Because he is furiously obsessed with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus. Oh how we thank you for your great passion toward us. For your obsession With us. In fact, that you rescued us because you delight in us and you want us to know that deep delight. Thank you for giving yourself for us. And we cry out now would you continue to change our hearts that our eyes might be open to see and that we might more fully love you and love one another through you. And we look forward to that day when we see you. Full, clear vision. Until then, grow our faith in you. Amen. Amen.